the only way we can really embody our lives fully is if we accept death. Because if we're walking around with a fear of death, then we're holding ourselves back from really being as full and expansive as we can be. Hello, and welcome to Medicine Stories, episode 32. Today I'm talking with Tara Coyote about grief, cancer, ancestry. You know, I want to I want to give a little disclaimer, I suppose, um, since we are talking about choosing a different path for treating cancer. What I want to say is that my intention on this podcast is never to tell people how to live, how to treat their own illnesses, how to be in their own bodies. I think that's pretty clear if you've really listened to any of the episodes. But, um, you know, I've just, it's become clear to me that I need to actually spell that out. Um, Just because I interview people or present ideas that are outside the mainstream doesn't mean I think it's right for everyone in any way. I'm not uh, anti-medicine, the scientific uh, model, as it's sometimes called, the dominant paradigm. Um... And I'm, I'm very pro-science, as you know if you've listened to this at all. In fact, I was just reminded through my Facebook memories that in 2015, um, the HuffPost included me in an article that was like 13 witchy accounts you need to follow or something. And either they called me the science witch or other people called me that afterwards. I don't think they called me that. I think someone called me that afterwards. Um, Anyway, I am not interested in telling people how to live or what healing paths to take in their lives. I'm interested in what works. And a lot of what doesn't work is firmly entrenched in the mainstream. Um, And so, you know, I know that a lot of people don't have access to the information that I've had access to for a long time, being deeply in the herbal community for 13 years now, and just like living in California where there's so much, so many um, alternative practitioners and so much information. And I really hate the word alternative too. I've talked about that before. It's, you know, healing with plants, looking at, stepping back and looking at the vast, wide arc of human history is the norm. This is the norm. Um, The medical system that we have going on right now is very much the alternative. So, but it, but it's absolutely appropriate sometimes to go that route. Um, So just because I am interviewing my friend Tara today about her choosing not to undergo conventional treatment for her cancer doesn't mean that I think no one should ever choose conventional treatment for their cancer, nor does Tara believe that. Um, you know, I just, I wanted to hear more. She's someone, as we say at the end, who I've, who's been in my community and my larger community for a while. We've crossed paths in the physical a few times, but I wanted to just know more about her story and especially about her time nursing her best friend through cancer for 22 months. Um, her friend who chose, you know, a fully conventional route and died anyway. And, um, which of course happens and people who choose quote alternative routes die too. Um, as with, as I always say, 
everything is so complex and we really need to embrace nuanced thinking. Um, so yeah, there's that. My dear, dear friend was diagnosed with cervical cancer a couple months ago and wasn't even given a choice about which healing path she wanted to take because it was so severe. It was so severe. Um, like she woke up in the hospital and they were like, oh, we're, we're wheeling the chemo in and you're starting radiation this afternoon. And when we talked about it later, she was actually grateful that um, she wasn't given a choice because, you know, she's someone who lives a natural life, <laughs> eats all organic food, and just is interested in healing modalities that are outside the medical mainstream model. So she might have really wanted to do something different. And that's a hard choice to make. As Tara and I talk about, it's a hard choice to make. No one is willfully like, F modern medicine, man. I'm just gonna like drink a bunch of wheatgrass and heal myself. Like we know it's more complex than that. And um, so I just, I really want to make that clear. I really want to make that clear. I also feel the need to say that I am never in this podcast going to be able to cover every single aspect of every single topic that's talked about. Not even close, not even close, and I've never claimed to. So there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to cancer and cancer treatment. And we're just talking about Tara's path right here today. Um, so on that note, I just wanted to talk about a book that I have really, really enjoyed when it comes to cancer. And I read it this last spring. Um, it's called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer by Dr. Nasha Winters, N-A-S-H-A. I know there's another author as well, but I've been listening to Dr. Winters on podcasts recently. She was on the Bulletproof podcast since my friend's diagnosis. Um, and so hers is the name that really stands out. But I just found it really fascinating and something that's really useful for anyone is that there's a quiz. So they break it down into like there's 10 categories of cancer vulnerability, cancer susceptibility that in all of our lives. And they have this quiz where you can see like which area of your life are you more susceptible to perhaps your body um, playing host to runaway cancerous cells and then you can really look at like wow I need to really cut down on my wi-fi or sugar or um, you know not getting enough sleep I just found that really helpful so I wanted to put that in here the uh, metabolic approach to cancer by Dr. Nasha Winters um, Tara's website she says it a few times during the interview but she says it kind of quickly and we don't enunciate it until the end so I just wanted to say that it's cancer warrior s com. And I also want to give you a little update. At the end here, we talk about how Tara, one of her sources of income for her main source of income for treating her cancer um, has been two Airbnb units on her land and a neighbor turned her in for her tiny house because it wasn't permitted. This neighbor knew she had cancer. And so she just didn't know what she was going to do. Like this literally put her, her livelihood and therefore her life at stake. And so what she ended up doing was putting her horse ranch and her home on the market um, just about a week ago. I just wanted to update you because, again, this um, was recorded a couple months ago. I'm still so behind, but taking this little break from interviewing has helped. And I'm almost all caught up. 
And hopefully in the new year, we'll really be back into the swing of getting interviews out and getting them out um, much more quickly after they have been recorded. So the Patreon bonus that goes along with this episode for patrons at the $2 and up level is an ebook that Tara wrote called Learning Healthy Boundaries, Tools for Healing and Self-Discovery. It says that what you'll learn in this ebook is you'll know that you have the right to personal boundaries, recognize that other people's needs and feelings are not more important than your own, learn to say no, identify the actions and behaviors that you find unacceptable, and trust and believe in yourself. And for anyone who's interested in Tara's specific cancer healing protocol, because I know that's where my mind would go right away if I was listening to this, um, as we say in this interview, that is on her website, cancerwarriors.com. Um, there's a ton of links in the show notes for this episode because we talk about a lot. We talk about a lot of books and um, our favorite grief books. So check out the show notes. Also in there, oh, I should tell you, Patreon is um, patreon.com slash Madison stories and there's a ton of good stuff there if you haven't been over there yet um, every single podcast guest has contributed something and they're all really awesome and I get so much good feedback people say it's the best patreon that they've been a part of and so you know if you're into the show if you get two bucks a month to spare it really helps me be able to do this I'm recording this intro right now because I got a nanny paid for from Patreon so that I can have the time to do this. Um, okay, also in the show notes near the top is a link to Tara's GoFundMe. Um, now, especially that her income has been taken away, this is the main way that she is able to, um, or it's a way that she is making some money right now so that she can keep paying for these extremely expensive treatments that she's doing um, as she continues to put so much content out into the world and help other people navigate their own cancer journeys and decide what is best for them, which healing path is best for them, which healing path is best for you. This is the only thing I'm interested in, not in telling you how to do it, not in telling you how to live your life, not in saying one approach is better than the other because nobody knows for sure. Who knows? What is best for you other than you? Okay, that said, um, let's get let's get on to it. Let's get into it. Tara's bio real quick here. Tara Coyote has been on a deep dive journey the past five years through dramatic life change and switching careers from owning a successful Pilates business and buying a ranch to work in the field of equine facilitated learning being with her best friend from diagnosis to death for 22 months with leukemia, becoming a death doula, and then her own stage 3 breast cancer diagnosis in September 2016. She has chosen a path of healing cancer through exclusively natural methods and has been in the public eye through writing blogs, making videos, and coaching others through the challenges of choosing a natural path of healing. Okay, here we go with Tara Kai All right. Hi, Tara. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, I so I thought we could start by talking about how we met because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about today. Do you remember? I certainly do. It's very relevant. You're right. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me, tell me how we met. <laughs> You're going to test me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember pretty clearly because it was a very profound moment. Amber and I met. Um, there was a death cafe going on in Grass Valley. And I was fairly new to the area. I'd been here two years or so. And it was right around the time when my best friend was in the process of dying from acute myeloid leukemia. And it was a long process. I was her main caregiver for 22 months during her illness. And um, I think I walked into the death cafe around the time where I was realizing, wow, she's not going to make it. And I was really coming to grips with the, my best friend of 18 years was dying and she was so young. She was 46 when she passed. So Amber facilitated the group that I was in, the small group. And it was just so wonderful and comforting to be with Amber and just to be able to tell my story and to be with others talking about death when death is such a taboo subject. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, very comforting to be with you and very profound. So I will never, ever forget that moment. I'm ever so grateful for it. Mm, yeah, I remember it really strongly, too. I think that was the second or third that we hosted. And I think you and I sat right next to each other. Um, I think so. We were very close. And I, I, we were just really feeling each other. <laughs> I, like, you made a strong impression on me. Um, and yeah, I just was so grateful for what you had to bring to the discussion that day. And mm -hmm. so moved by your story and the fact that you were so present for Deb and so committed to seeing her through to the end of her illness. Mm. Well, it's, I think that's what you do with people that you love so much. I think well, I know I had had a friend who had died young from cancer a couple of years before. I think she was 40 when she passed and another bright, vibrant, beautiful soul. And it really shocked me when she died. I, I didn't think she actually would. And um, we obviously were not as close as Deb and I. So it really made me realize like, wow, anybody could die at any age. It's, you know, even if you're young, you're not immune. So when Deb was diagnosed with leukemia, it really made me step up to know that, okay, well, if she does pass, I want to know that I did everything I could to be present with her and just cherish the time I had. Yeah, and Thank that you. you were able to do that at that stage in your life, you know, because your son was grown and yeah. it's just beautiful and how, how lucky, how blessed she was to have you. Mm, well, it was a deep growth experience, so I was blessed to be there. It was very painful, but very beautiful, too, like many uh, <laughs> life growth experiences are. Right. And so, I mean, there's so much we can talk about. I'd love for you to speak more about Deb and that journey if you'd like to. And then, of course, your own, your own cancer diagnosis that came not too long after Deb's passing. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of places I could go with that. But basically, I guess I could say that when... Uh, Deb was ill for 22 months. I, I'm naturally a caregiver, so I really step up for the people that I love. And I gave and I gave and I gave a lot. And, of course, it was heartbreaking to see somebody you love declining and um, 
pass on and then all the grief and all that. So I was a bit depleted through the whole process. I, I don't regret it. Like, I'm so glad I showed up. But then almost exactly a year after she died, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. So it was quite shocking. Like, oh my gosh, now, now I'm got this dreadful cancer diagnosis. So it definitely threw me for a big loop. And um, it's been almost two years since I was diagnosed. And I've definitely grown a lot. And uh, it's been a powerful experience, to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> you, um, you brought me food when I was very pregnant. That's right. <laughs> two years ago, Nixie's birthday is on a week. Um, and oh. And you got the diagnosis like a few days later. I remember seeing it on Facebook and just being like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. you know, like what the, sh how, like, yeah, <laughs> just being angry at the universe for that happening. And I'm sure that's a feeling a lot of people have when they get such a diagnosis and but just, and then your sister-in-law as well. Yes, my dear sister-in-law, she passed from colon cancer about a year ago. So she was diagnosed about six months after Deb died. And unfortunately, she died a year ago. So yeah, I've had two very, very, very dear close friends and family members die in the last couple of years from cancer, both very young. One was 46, one was 47. So wow. Yeah, Did I ever tell you that I have a few mutual friends with your sister-in-law too so I was like watching oh. her story unfold on Facebook and then realized that the person you were also posting about was the same woman oh I had no idea yeah from Santa Cruz midwifery circles okay that makes a lot of sense wow what a small world yeah yeah I know um sorry it's just so big like there's so much to say and I feel uh like I'm grasping for words, but let's talk specifically right now about your approach to healing your cancer and how you made the decision to, to not do conventional medicine. Sure. Yes. That's a big topic. So when I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, I dove into tons of research. I read books. I talked to people who treated themselves with conventional means and alternative means. I watched movies. My partner and I just were just immersed in material for about a month or so. And um, keep in mind, I've had the experience of being with Deb, who had chosen a very complete conventional route. And she had leukemia, which is much more aggressive mm -hmm. than breast cancer. And I totally supported her with her choices. Um, but because I was so close to her, I spent you know, days and days and days and days at the hospital at a time because she was in the hospital for like four months at a time and then she'd come out and there was constant blood tests. So she was back and forth all the time and she went through a lot of chemo. She went through a bone marrow transplant. She went through more chemo and I was just there through all of it. And um, to be honest, a lot of it was pretty horrifying what I witnessed and um, just to be entrenched in that world. And Granted, I'm not somebody who's a big hospital doctor person to begin with, so I already had a background of being very alternative in my choices. And so when my diagnosis came along and I went to the conventional doctors, the allopathic doctors, and they told me what 
my route of treatment would be, which would have been four months of the big guns, they called it, of chemotherapy. Because I was young, I was 46 at the time when I was diagnosed, they told me that the chemotherapy would possibly kill me, would probably land me in the hospital, I'd be so sick, and would permanently <laughs> disable my immune system pretty much. And then I'd have to have surgery and then radiation and then most likely more chemo. And that was about a, a year of treatment. So I looked at that and it was pretty horrifying to think of. And then I spoke to other people who had healed themselves naturally. And I found Dr. V's book. She wrote a book called Heal Breast Cancer Naturally. And she healed herself completely naturally with, from breast cancer. And so I got very inspired about, wow, there's people doing it. Yeah, you don't hear about it all the time, but you can do this. And it's a much more empowered way to heal yourself. It takes a lot more commitment and dedication. But because I knew the other alternatives so well, I decided to take this completely you know, unbeaten path and ended up being in the public eye because of it. I decided to be, you know, share it on Facebook and I ended up creating a website and blog and Instagram page and making videos. So yeah, it's been quite the journey. Um, another thing I'd like to add too for the breast cancer I was diagnosed with was just estrogen positive. I didn't know this at the time, but or it's the research has been coming out in the last couple of years that actually the chemotherapy they were wanting me to do is not that effective for the breast cancer I have. So, you know, instinctively I knew, you know what, that's just going to not be the right path for me. And in saying that, I don't negate people who are choosing that path because I really believe everybody has their own path to choose. This is my path I've chosen, chosen basically. Wow. Um, so what what are you doing? What have you been doing? What are the, what's your protocol? I've been doing a lot. It's a full time dedicated process. Um, let's see, I've done so many things. I chart my progress. And if anyone wants to go to my website, cancerwarriors.com, you can read all this if it seems like a lot of information, but I have a resource page where I've written out all sorts of information. I've shared my protocol. So it's all there, but basically I chart my progress with something called the RGCC test or Greece test. It's where I actually withdraw my blood and I get it sent to Greece, the country Greece, and they test the tumor cell counts in my bloodstream. So it's basically checking on the root cause of what's going in my blood rather than just monitoring the tumor, which is much more of the allopathic viewpoint of like what's going on with a tumor, annihilate the tumor, get rid of the tumor, because the tumor is a result of an imbalance in the body. So I'm testing my blood to see how much cancer is actually in my body. And with that test, you can also find out which supplements are best suited at reducing cancer cells. So for a long time, I've been taking supplements that are specifically directed at you know, reducing the amount of cancer cells I have. And so lots of supplements. Um, I followed a partial Gerson method for a long time, doing daily coffee enemas, lots of veggie juicing. I'm still doing that now. Uh, infrared saunas. I've done lots of high-dose vitamin C infusions, which is basically you're getting vitamin C pumped into your veins for a couple hours, and that creates oxygen blasts in the bloodstream, which annihilates cancer cells. 
Um, another thing I've been doing, which uh, is kind of out there, but there's a lot of information about it that's just coming out, is uh, using bee venom therapy where I actually have beautiful beehives. So I take a live bee and I'll sting myself on my breast around the tumor. And so I use the bee venom to actually treat the cancer, so to speak. And, and a lot of other things, herbs. I mean, I could go on and on and on, basically. There's a lot of information out there, and it can be very overwhelming to somebody first mm-hmm. diagnosed, but everybody's got to choose what's right for them. But Yeah, that must have been just... Uh, such information overload when you were first looking into all this and deciding what path to take. Definitely, definitely. And there's all the people that have advice for you, like, do this, do uh-huh. that, don't do this. So it's it's really navigating what's right for you and listening to your intuition and your body and, and trial and error, trying something and saying, you know what, that doesn't feel right. So then trying something else. Did anyone in your life really give you shit for not going the conventional route? Yes, I definitely went through that. Um, I am in an alternative community. So all of my friends and community were very supportive and understood my choices and definitely were right on board with me. My family, on the other hand, they're all more science-based and um, they come from that viewpoint. And of course, they were terrified that I had a stage three breast cancer diagnosis. And when I shared that I'm going to take this other route, no, I'm not going to go do this traditional route, they didn't understand. And um, it was pretty tough for many months where, um, you know, I don't want to speak badly about them, but it was just very challenging because I felt I didn't feel supported in my choice when it was already very stressful for myself. And in that process, I learned about boundaries and really taking care of myself. And um, I also understood, too, that the reason why they were pressuring me so much is because they loved me so much and they were scared that they would lose me. So I've learned a lot about being strong in my own belief system. And, of course, you can't please everybody. You know, it's, everybody's got their ideas about what is right. So. hmm Got to just go with what's right for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember when I was taking herb classes here with Kathy Cavill uh, a decade or more ago, in one of our outings, she took us to uh, this old, old man. I, I can't imagine he's still living. Um, his farm and his bees. And he was showing us, he was stinging himself on the hand with his bees and telling us about you know the healing of the venom. And I just thought it was so cool and that it made a lot of sense. And I guess having had a beekeeper um, on episode nine, I think, Ariella Daly, I would just, will you tell us a little bit more about how the apitherapy works? Sure, I'm happy to do that. In fact, I just wrote an article. It's going to be coming out soon in honeycolony.com. It's a big online blog. And I spent many, many months constructing this article all about my bee venom AP therapy experience. And then I just recently did an interview with Dr. V that's going to be out next week too. So I know you can put those links on the blog when this comes out, but basically um, bee venom and you can look up scientific articles about this and such, but basically what it does is it causes the tumor to contract when the bee venom 
encounters the tumor. Um, and bee venom is incredibly healing also, not only for cancer, but for like arthritis, um, many other ailments, Lyme disease. And bee venom has been used for thousands and thousands of years. I think Aristotle, wait, no, not Aristotle, somebody else. Anyway, somebody, a Greek physician, um, <laughs> and I'm not thinking of his name, maybe it is Aristotle, but he was the one who first started using it and writing about it and how it was so healing and the Egyptians use it, Chinese culture used it. So it's been along for around for a long, long time, basically. And when I sting my breast, everybody's curious, like, whoa, doesn't that hurt? And how is it? So basically, I'll sting myself. Unfortunately, the bee does die because once it loses its stinger, it dies. So I'll sting myself about three or four times around the tumor. Sometimes it's like a bullseye around my breast. Sometimes it's like below my breast, depending on what I'm wanting to do at that time. And yes, there is a stinging sensation for a while, but my body's gotten so used to it that, you know, I'll just be present in the sensation for however long it lasts. And then I'll kind of get on with my day and such. But it's very much a sacred process, you know. Being around bees is a very magical, sacred act. So I, I feel like using the bee venom for therapy is very much a part of just entering in this deeper layer of spirituality with the bee entities. And it's hard to put into words, but it's, I'm very grateful to be using them. And I'm very grateful that they're sacrificing their lives for me. And we have a, a great relationship together where I thank them for giving up their lives like. I provide them food in a safe place. And so, yeah, it feels very harmonious between us, basically. Yeah, so do you not know Ariella Daly? Because she's from up here also. I don't think I do, actually. Oh, I will um, hook you up on Instagram because she very much has the same approach to her work with bees. You know, it's very... Um, <laughs> Uh, the word shamanic is hard yes. for me as a, as a religious studies major when we use that word um, in you know places outside its original Siberian context. But it's a very shamanic approach that she takes and very feminist. She's like she does these like feminist beekeeping Friday posts where she talks about a more oh, feminist wow. approach to her beekeeping. And she's actually at this huge conference right now in Europe right. uh, all about like this approach to beekeeping. So. Anyway, you guys would like each other. She grew up here in Nevada City. Does she live here now? Or she, she Her parents are still here, so she's here pretty often, but she's been in Sonoma for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, she yeah, teaches classes and all sorts of stuff. Um, mm. That's very much the approach. There's a woman, Shiana Bone, who lives in this area, and oh, she's mentoring me. Friends. Okay, yeah. I figured, I yep. figured. Yep. <laughs> but it's that, it's that approach of just, really respecting the bees and it's a whole another level of beekeeping it's like being in relationship with the bees rather than just using them to produce these products that you want exactly exactly yep it's very sacred it really is Ari has really turned me on to just how magical bees are mm -hmm. and their products are incredible too they're I mean, you know this, but their honey is very therapeutic, and the bee pollen, and royal jelly, royal jelly, and propolis, exactly. yeah. and, yeah. Um, oh, you said pollen, yeah. 
Um, so I want to hear, this is something I've always been curious about with you, about your connection with horses and how you came to own your ranch and do these grief rituals with horses. Right. Well, let's see. Um, about seven years ago or so, I was having a very difficult experience with my ex-husband. Um, I was at a pretty low point in my life and just very, very difficult time. And basically I was asking the universe and my guides for help. Um, I lived in Marin County then, and I owned a Pilates and gyrotonics studio. I lived a very different life than I live now. And I was asking the universe for guidance and the guidance I got was go spend time with the horses, which was very perplexing to me because I was a horse crazy girl, you know, young girl. And I never had a horse, although I always wanted one, but I would spend summers in the East Coast with my cousins, and they had horses. And a year previous to this difficult experience, I had read The Tao of Equus by Linda Kowanoff, and I remembered that I'd read that book and that it was very powerful. So I found a woman who did equine therapy who lived near me, and I started doing that. And it, I was you know, having about a year of just being very depressed and very very confused, very lost. And once I started spending time with the horses, it just pushed me through. I mean, it's not like it was immediate, but it just really changed my whole trajectory from being in a very dark, depressed place to finding some hope and relief. And then I ended up going to Arizona to take a workshop with Linda Kohanoff, who wrote the book, The Tao of Aquinas. She runs a wonderful organization called Epona Quest. And the work was so transformational and truly brought me out of this dark place. And I was so inspired that I decided to um, sell my Pilates business and sell my house and move up to Nevada City and get my first horse. And eventually I bought a ranch and was inspired to teach this work because it had really changed my life in such a profound way. So I gradually built up my business and over time had four horses and uh, I have this beautiful 10 acre ranch in Nevada City where I do equine facilitated learning. I do workshops and retreats and um, about the grief rituals, you asked about that. After Deb died, I was in such grief, which would be expected after a dear friend dies. And I realized that in our culture, we don't really know how to deal with grief. There's that predominant attitude of, wow, your beloved died months ago and you're not over it yet. Like, just get over it. And I realized there needed to be a safe place for people to express their grief and release it. So I decided to combine the horsework, the equine facilitated learning work that I taught with a grief ritual. So I created these day-long events where people could come and commemorate their loved ones or their cat that died or whatever they were grieving at that time and just have a safe space to be really present within a community. So it was very profound to do that for people and just really celebrate that space of grief. And the end result was a lot of people felt like they could get on their lives more than they had before because they had really gave time and space to commemorate their grief and their loved ones or whatever it was they were grieving. So I could say a lot more about it, but there's a lot to it. I was just having the thought that when we met at that death cafe, I believe it was 2014, 
Um, I think so, yes. We both had so much grieving ahead of us. Uh-huh. And, I mean, I didn't know it. You know, my mom would die in a car accident a year and a half later. You were realizing that Deb would pass, but you didn't know about your sister-in-law or your own cancer diagnosis. And, right. you know, these... Uh, uh, the unknowns in our futures are are huge, but for sure we're going to have enormous grief, either that or we're going to die ourselves young. And mm-hmm. so those this grief work and talking to people about grief, and for me, I felt like having facilitated the death cafes and just reading books about death and about grief, um, like by Stephen Jenkinson. We were both at the talk he did here a couple years ago, Die Wise is his book. It did help me. It did help me when I was suddenly thrust into a deep grief space to have just some sort of map of what that would look like because I'd been paying attention and listening to other people's stories and talking about it and aware that it would happen to me someday, not living my life from a place of oh, no, no, not me, pushing it away. Exactly. Yeah, and that, you know, it was such a light bulb that went off when Deb was dying, you know, because I had never really experienced the death of somebody I love like that so close to me. And it, it really made me realize that if we can accept death, then we can live more fully like the only way we can really embody our lives fully is if we accept death because if we're walking around with a fear of death then we're holding ourselves back from really being as full and expansive as we can be so that's been just a lesson that's been reiterated to me again and again through my dear friend's death and my own dance with cancer and my own mortality mm-hmm. yep <laughs> uh, I just yeah there's as I have an there's this app it's called we croak and once a day you get a reminder on your phone just a reminder you're going to die and then a quote and it's a new quote every time and it's just about like mortality awareness and being alive and present now and it's so funny because I'm just looked at my phone while I was telling you this and clicked on it and This quote is from Andrea Levine. I have cancer. And I know that once you get that diagnosis, no matter how much you already know, something happens. Everything becomes much more real. Ironically, it brings greater permission to be fully alive. I find it very exciting. (laughs) That's great. That says it all so perfectly. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was very serendipitous. That's says that's amazing because I was spending time with two women going through breast cancer last night which is very rare for me actually because we're there's a lot of us out there but we're kind of spread out all over the country and the world but we were talking exactly about that how we're actually really grateful for the diagnosis because it's causing us to live more fully and do things we wouldn't normally have done and just really appreciate how short our time is. So there's really a lot of gifts in the diagnosis, though it definitely wouldn't have been anything I would have chosen consciously. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's, I don't know if it's Buddhist or I think it might be a Buddhist quote. Or, you know, I think it's just one of those wis- 
pieces of wisdom that probably has come from different places, but it seems very Buddhist, that um, contemplating death brings happiness. Right. So I want to hear about how the grief... Okay, I like the idea of grief rituals, but I think I liked the idea more before I experienced that kind of grief myself because now when I think about it, I am afraid of how huge those grief waves can be do you Mm. do you know what I mean I mean I you know they hit me they hit me all the time like I go through it I go deep into it but I've had a couple where I was like subsumed and really had to work and ask for help getting myself out of that space um Mm -hmm. so I guess I'm, I'm curious like how it looks and does anyone ever get like really lost or scared or does it ever feel like out of some, I don't know. What does it look like when you actually do these grief rituals? That's a great question. And I think a lot of people share that similar fear of really diving into their grief and opening it up that once they open up that door, it'll just totally consume them. Um, So I guess what I have to say to that and what I'll share with the process is like, I think once you allow it to come out, it can move through. But it's a lot of times it's more of the anxiety over something that can be more than the actual process. But not Mm -hmm. to negate that the process can be intense. And yeah, you can get kind of lost in it at the time because I've felt that. But with the grief rituals I hold, we really create a sacred container. There's an altar where people put pictures or mementos of their loved one, whatever they want to put on it. You know, even if it's the grief of the envir- environment, they could put something on the altar to symbolize that. And I really create a safe space where people drop into their bodies. They tune into our their bodies because a lot of times we're so mind-centered. We forget the messages that our bodies have to teach, which is a lot of the horse work. I teach and then we spend time with the horses and the beautiful thing about being with horses and this is something that's hard to explain in a sentence or two you really have to experience it to understand it but there's something so soothing about being around horses and they really help pull out whatever anybody's suppressing whether it may be grief or anger sadness so it's very healing just being in the horse's presence so that in itself I find is very calming to people who are in a deep amount of grief. And then we spend time, um, there's a book by Francis Weller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And when I read his book, he's a man who lives in Sebastopol, it really just dropped me into the deeper level, like how healthy it is to express our grief and to share it. And I really recommend that book. It's so beautifully written. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing man who offers three-day grief rituals if anyone has a chance to attend them mm-hmm. I but love that there's book. oh yes it's so profound so beautiful but in the back of the book there's something called the stone ritual so I take I took what was written in his book and I incorporated it in my grief rituals where there's a stone ritual where people take turns and they take a stone out of a bowl and they'll say this stone Like for me, I'd say this stone represents my dear friend Deb who died and I miss her so much or I can say whatever I want to say and I would take the stone and I would put it on the altar in a big bowl of water and then other people would step up and name their griefs and we would spend about, I don't know, hour to two hours doing this. Whenever people were done, we'd be done. 
I would take this bowl of water and the stones down to the pond. I have a beautiful pond on my property. And we'd put the stones symbolically in the pond to mean we were letting go of our grief. And that action of the stone ritual really would lighten people's moods and spirits. And it's almost like they were letting go of years of grief they were holding. And interestingly enough, you know, grief is shared. So one person would say something, for example, about some painful thing that would happen in their childhood with their mother. And then it would cause somebody else in the group to remember something that happened with their mother in their childhood. So it was almost like through being in a collective consciousness place of experiencing grief, we would release so much more than just what we thought we were coming there for. And that also goes into environmental grief because I think a lot mm -hmm. of us are carrying around sadness over the environment and not being sure what to do. So I'm explaining this all in a nutshell. So I, I think it's, it was almost like the sense of a safe place to express grief would allow people permission to just release it. And once they release it and they were around people doing the same, it's almost like it made it okay because there's this idea in our culture that it's not okay to express your grief. Mm -hmm. But what you're once you're given a chance to express it, it's like a freedom or liberation. Yeah, to just like let it go. An opening too. It's, it opens you to more sweetness and more love, and yes, such a I don't know, just a sweet place to be in after that big expression of grief passes through. Yes, exactly. You can come in touch with more joy and happiness once you allow those tears or whatever it may be to come out. Yeah, I love to um, Martin Prechtel's book, The Smell of Rain on Dust. Yes. And the idea that grief is praise. Grief is love. Exactly. That's and such a beautiful book, too. It is. Those three, his, Francis Weller's, and Stephen Jenkinson's are my three favorite death-slash-grief books. Um, but his idea that, like, the your grief is proportional to how much you loved what's been lost. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's liberating to realize that, too. Like, wow, I'm feeling so much grief for this person that died. It's because I love them so much. I mean, of course you're going to feel so grief. Mm -hmm. So much grief. And that's okay. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, like, the first few weeks after my mom died, I was almost, like, high, like, floating because I was so suffused with her love and with my love for her. It, mm -hmm. Along with that huge grief, there was this huge love and me just really looking and understanding how big that love had been and how sustaining it had been and continues to be in my life. Yes. There's, there's so many waves that happen when somebody you love passes. <laughs> it's quite a journey mm -hmm. to ride, really. It really is. Um, I want to... Okay. <laughs> break the spell and shift gears a little bit because I really was curious about your ancestry. This is something we've never talked about if um, I don't really know anything about, but so you have Portuguese ancestors who moved to Hawaii in the 1870s. Like, how, do you, how do you connect with them? How do you know their stories and what is the story? 
Yes. Well, my dad's side of the family is from Kauai, the island, Hawaiian Islands. My mom's side of the family is from New Hampshire. So very different mm-hmm. stories and backgrounds there. But I really connect with the Portuguese Hawaii side of my family. Um, I've been going there since I was a child. I lived there for a long time in my 20s. It's, it's very much in my roots. So a lot of Portuguese people from the islands of the Azores and Madeiras came over in 1870s to the Hawaiian islands. They were brought over to work as foremen and managers in the sugarcane fields, basically. That's when the Hawaiian islands were starting to be brought up as, you know, the producers such for the mainland. Um, So they brought over these people from the Azores Islands and the Madeiras Islands because they were hardworking, simple people who were very much into their family. And it was a similar environment, island culture, and they knew that they would adapt well to the Hawaiian Islands. So who's that? Who's they? uh, The the Portuguese people, basically. Okay. Oh, oh, who brought them over, you're saying? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, so the Hawaiian Islands is very interesting history basically so they were brought over I guess you could say by the white people who Mm -hmm. were trying to really build up industry on the Hawaiian Islands so when you go to Hawaii if you go to Hawaii you'll see so many different ethnic groups there there's Filipinos there there's Chinese there's Japanese Portuguese many many more and they were all brought over at various times for different roles of working on the island basically it's a very fascinating history. If you read, I think it's Robert Mitchner's book, Hawaii, it talks all about it. And mm. It's a fiction book, but it goes into it. So anyways, my ancestors came over to Kauai and um, on the east side in Kapa'a, Wailua area, and goes back many, 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 many generations. It was my great-great-grandparents who came over. So they're all on a graveyard overlooking um, Wailua Beach there on the east side and we still have a family house there my cousins live there Um, but I always felt strong roots when I went there we would go back and visit family and um, it's one of those connections where and Kauai is such a magical place anyways but when I would go there as a child it's almost like I felt my ancestral lineage in the ground and how far back it went and just almost in a sense like all the trauma that happened because unfortunately there was a lot of trauma in that side of the family there and all the beauty and just all the roots and when I still go back there now I feel it very strongly because there's such a um, intermingling of roots in the Hawaiian island and I go there and I meet people that I'm related to that I didn't even know existed before (laughs) because It was a, it's a small place, and everybody kind of intermarried there. So it's a very fascinating place to be from, and um, I just love the whole idea of being from the islands and just that more seafaring culture and just all the magic and mystery of the islands. You know, there's Pele, the Hawaiian goddess. It's a very powerful place to have roots, basically. Yeah, it definitely is, and as soon as I read that, I, it just it fit you. It just totally clicked and made sense that that that's that's your ancestry. Those are your roots. And you you briefly mentioned the trauma on your father's side, but you had specifically mentioned uh, your grandmother. Would you care to tell me about her? 
Sure. This is going to deep stuff I've never mentioned in an interview, but I'm happy to talk about it because <laughs> we're all here with our own amazing stories. Uh, so basically, um, my father had a pretty traumatic childhood and um, his mother died when he was about 14. His mother was my grandmother, who I obviously never met. But uh, she had pretty traumatic life without going into a lot of detail. She was in some pretty harsh relationships. And um, at that time, I think in the early 50s and the 40s, she was a single mom for a while. It was pretty, you know, taboo to be a single mother back then, not like it is now. Now it's much more common. But um, there was just a lot of trauma and hardship that happened that, of course, you know, we absorb our family lineage and our DNA. So, um, you know, I absorb her trauma because it's passed through my genes. But um, she ended up moving from Kauai in the 50s, which was very rural. People hardly wore shoes. There was no, you know, traffic lights on the island to the Bronx in New York City to be with the man she married um, and didn't see my dad for a couple years because at that time, like airplane travel and travel in general was very expensive and it was very far from Kauai to New York, you know, across the United States. So she didn't see my father for a couple years. Who did he live and with? Then he lived with his grandparents. So he was pretty much raised by his grandparents and his uncle on Kauai in a big way. But he ended up going to New York City when he was about 12, and he'd never worn shoes in his life growing up on Kauai. You know, it was extremely rural, like I said, and moving to the city in New York, which is quite wow. an adjustment. Yeah. Yeah, and he lived there for about two years or so with my grandmother. I think it was a pretty stressful time, and... He's told me some pretty, you know, scary stories and such. But anyway, she died a pretty tragic death. There was a betrayal that happened with her husband, and she ended up having a stroke and dying at the age of 37. My dad was there. This was in New York City. And um, so, of course, he was sent back to be in Kauai, and he was raised by his grandparents and such. But it was a pretty amazing thing. So, again, I've never shared this publicly, so this is pretty vulnerable stuff. But I feel comfortable sharing it because in talking about our wounds, we help heal it. But when I was born, so many people told me, you act and you're so much like your grandmother and you look like her. And it was kind of bizarre hearing that from so many people. And also, my dad has these wounds from the past, too, because he lost his mama at such a young age, and he never really had a dad either. So about, um, gosh, maybe 10 years ago or so, I went to New York City because nobody in my family had visited her grave, and nobody knew where she was buried. So I ended up searching through the death records to find out where she was buried because I knew that there had to be this healing for my grandmother who died. So I found out where she was buried through these death records and I went to visit her grave, which was the most amazing experience to visit, you know, my dead grandmother's grave who nobody had, 
you know, visited ever. So it, it ended up being a very healing experience, I think, genetically for me, for my father, and, you know, mm. hopefully for my son and others to come. So mm. in saying that, I just want to acknowledge the connection between illness, cancer, and, you know, the genetic lineage, too, because I think part of her trauma passed through to me, which could be a part of the cancer in my left breast as well, so... Mm. Oh, there was I, a lot said there, but I just wanted to make that connection. I'm so glad I asked. I literally got chills when you said that you went to visit her grave. Um, that's so that's so powerful. I just think it's so important that we honor our ancestors in that way when we're able to. Yes. And yeah, that, that no one else had. What a powerful act of healing and connection. Mm-hmm. Well, she died in so much trauma, and all her family was across the ocean in Kauai. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it just seemed really important for the genetic healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> I I want to thank you for sharing that. It's it, it's just family stories are so amazing. You know, it's like. You could be the most creative writer of fiction and turn out like made up family stories one after another and it would never be as interesting as real family stories are. And I just love hearing people's stories and feel honored and blessed that you shared that. Um, Thank you for witnessing and for hearing it. Yeah, and I think too there can be, you know, healing, at least honoring and, and sharing these stories out loud and then speaking them and um, mm-hmm. speaking their name is what was her name? Her name was Myra, which interesting enough was one of the middle names I was given. So it was almost like an imprint there. And one other thing I want to share about the whole family healing and not to go into great detail because this was a very vulnerable thing, but I have written about it in one of my past blogs if anyone wants, wants to poke around and read it. But when I was going through the difficult experience with my husband around the same time when I was discovering the healing power of horses, I went to a family reunion in Kauai and I talked with this 94-year-old woman who actually knew my grandmother because, you know, not many people knew her really well because she was, you know, she would have been much older. And I talked to this 94-year-old woman and I found out information about her that I didn't even know that actually she was going through a very traumatic experience before she died that was very similar to the traumatic experience I was going through with my ex-husband. So it was almost like this huge shocking light bulb of like, oh my God, I'm, you know, repeating her history in a sense, like it's almost mm-hmm. like there's a healing and there was other, there's other strange commonalities. Like we had our children really young and just very, a lot of uncanny things that, you know, or just you look at it and you're like, huh, interesting. Like my life is playing out her life and all the healing that happens with somebody who had died, you know, however many years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, 45 years earlier. So we've talked about this a number of times on this podcast, and most recently with Daniel Four, that when it comes to like ancestral connection, it's like time collapses, and Mm. the same event, the same trauma can echo through 
people in the same lineage. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, those, those coincidences are not coincidences. That's very synchronistic stuff with you and the grandma that you were named after. That's so fascinating. I didn't actually know that, that the same traumas can occur. It makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. The Daniel four episode, he tells a story about his paternal line in this um, stomach issue that uh, it's all been different, but it's all been like wounds or issues in the stomach that have, that he has healed in his lifetime. And that was one of the most like, wow, dramatic and powerful um, examples of that, that I've heard. Mm. Um, so it really serves us right to heal it when we can, I think, so we don't pass it on to our grandchildren. (laughs) Absolutely. Totally. Ancestral healing is like descendant insurance. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have their own traumas because they're embodied humans. So let's just try to minimize those as much as we can. Uh, I kind of, if you don't mind, I want to talk about what what is happening with your ranch and what happened with your neighbor? Cause I just feel oh. like super invested in this and angry about it. Oh. Um, so because, you know, normally at the end I would be like, and check out wind horse sanctuary and you can go be <laughs> with Tara on her land and do this, but that might not be a possibility anymore. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And thank you for asking and thank you for your, compassion support I've definitely felt it it's much appreciated yeah so basically I'll explain it um I've had a cottage on my property for three and a half years I've had it on Airbnb and it's been part of my income and granted owning a 10 acre ranch is very expensive and four horses and then when I was diagnosed two years ago my medical expenses just skyrocketed because insurance unfortunately does not cover alternative care so it's really, you know, I've had fundraisers after fundraisers and people have been so generous in doing it. I'm so grateful, but um, it's been pretty stressful yeah. raising enough money for the process. So I was seriously considering my ranch in the springtime, but then I got this brilliant idea of getting a tiny house because tiny houses are so popular and hip right now of getting a tiny house and putting up my property to have another Airbnb to help supplement my income and, and you know, help me basically pay, cover my costs. So I got a very generous loan from a friend and um, went through the process of getting a tiny house and for months just spent time getting it together. There was problem after problem, but my partner and I persevered and it finally got on Airbnb and we were so excited and so relieved and so exhausted and um, it was booked out for like a month. I mean, immediately because this is a really nice tiny house and they're such a novelty item. And so a week and a half after it was on Airbnb, I got a letter from the county basically saying that they found out that there was an unpermitted dwelling structure on my land, which was almost like the sky caving and it was like, oh no, what's going on? And so been in this process with the county who I must say they've been very nice and very generous and very kind to me so I don't want to diss them at all but apparently a neighbor reported me saying that you know something was going on here and I had airbnbs and so the guy from the county came and I found out that the cottage was actually not permitted to have on airbnb which I did not know for three and a half years I thought it was fine Um, And that the tiny house 
was not permitted to be on Airbnb and there was no way I could do that. So basically I'm losing both my incomes, which, you know, excuse my French kind of puts me up shit Creek and, uh, don't want to go on too much about it, but to get the cottage permitted, it's just like a lot of money and not worth it to be honest. And I just don't have the energy to go through all the loopholes with the County Mm -hmm. and the, tiny house, it's impossible to get permanent. So I'm looking at, unfortunately, and it's very heartbreaking, but I'm coming to a place of surrender, having to sell my beautiful 10 acre ranch windhorse sanctuary because I can't financially support it anymore. And um, I don't want to be in the place of just stressing out about not having enough money because I'm healing breast cancer and I really need to be in a relaxed place. So what I'm looking at is what do I need to heal? And that's basically, you know, finding a place where I can relax and just know I'm taken care of. And Mm -hmm. if I can't meet my financial needs, like that's not going to happen. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And I'm coming to acceptance a bit. It's been about a month knowing this and I've gone from all the ranges of emotion from (laughs) anger. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) I am. I'm just mad at your neighbor. I just like, and you, I think you posted that she knows your cancer situation too, right? That's the thing too, is that we live in a rural road and there's a road committee and I'm the treasurer of the road committee. Like I handle everybody's money and I've really stepped up and helped out way more than most people on this road. So, and, and everybody knows I'm going through cancer too. It's, it's not like it's a secret. So yeah, it was, it really hurt my heart. I'm, I'm, you know, much better. But at first it was really painful to think like, wow, somebody knows my situation and they would do this and have no idea of the implications it would have on my health and my horses and my partner and my land. So yeah, it was a little disheartening. I'm coming around to a little more faith in the the human (laughs) realm, but yeah, it's been definitely a whopper and, and who knows, maybe something will happen. Maybe a miracle will happen, but right now I'm thinking I'll probably have to sell my ranch, unfortunately, in October or so. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry, Tara. It's just been breaking my heart watching that story unfold. Okay, so let's thank you for talking to me so much. I always, You're just someone who I was always, you know, some people you're like, I hope we connect more, but then your lives just don't overlap. Um, you know, like my, my best friends are my daughter's parents friends parents because our lives overlap so much and then there's just these people who are like hi I like you a lot but it's just we're so busy and so I'm glad to be talking to you um and so let's end by well you know first I I want to tell you just because uh just because it's meaningful to this conversation so we were supposed to talk last week and we canceled because we both just had like an onslaught of shit going on and actually after that, after we canceled, my best friend got a cancer diagnosis. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and it's, um, we think it's going to be okay. It's an organ that she can lose. It's expendable at this point in her life. She's done using it for the most part. Um, so in that way, she's lucky. But we're also still at the very beginning, and um, there's a lot that we don't know still. 
And so I, yeah, I can't, I don't want to say too much at this moment. Not too many people know, but I love her so much. I like, I told her, I'm not willing to live without you. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can to support you and advocate for you. And I just, it really made me think about you and, and Deb. Um, yeah, my heart goes out to you, sweetie. I understand. Yeah. And you know, it's just, uh, middle age and the, the, the times we're living in, the environment that we're living in, cancer is becoming much, much more prevalent. One in three women and one in two men will get cancer. Yes. Uh, those numbers are enormous. Have you read or seen the film based on the book, um, Cancer, the Emperor of Maladies? No, I have not, actually. I watched it on Netflix years ago just because I'm interested in the body and in disease in general, and it is so good. The film is so well done. Um, that's where I learned that statistic and a lot of like the history of cancer and cancer treatments and where we're at now and how it just kind of is worsening, and oh, mm-hmm. it's just scary, and I'm so sorry that it happened to you and that you're still very much going through it. Oh, thank you. Well... To be honest, I've grown so much in this time since Deb was diagnosed. Like it's really just been such an epic path of transformation. So I, I tend to focus on the gratitude and the beauty of it rather than getting bitter and angry because, you know, trying yeah. to look at it in a positive way is much more conductive to growth. So, yeah. so thank you for your compassion. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the fact that I'm trying to make the best of it each day, it serves me and it allows me to be healing at a faster rate than just feeling upset about it. Yeah. And it will allow you to touch so many people's lives and put out really valuable information to the world. So why don't you tell folks where they can find you and yeah, what, what you have out there? Sure. Yes, I would love to. So you can go to my website, cancerwarriorist.com. Um, I have I'm just going to say that more slowly, just in sure, case sure, sure. cancerwarrioress.com. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's warrior, W-A-R-R-I-O-R-E-S-S. So warrior with an E-S-S, basically. And um, in it, I have a resource page because so many people are coming at me, asking me questions. So I just created a resource page. So there's a lot of great information there about where to go to if you're interested in healing cancer naturally. I have a book and film resource page. Um, I have a blog, so I've been just writing and sharing pictures about my journey. Uh, there's Oh, I do offer coaching for people. I was a life coach before I was diagnosed, so I decided just to use those skills and offer help to people because so many people are reaching out to me. I do offer cancer coaching groups at times, although I'm not offering them at this moment. Um, I also have a Facebook page, Cancer Warriors, the same spelling and such, and I post a lot. I share pictures, stories from the journey, alternative cancer healing information. Also, the Instagram page. I love putting up pictures. And a YouTube page because I've been making some videos and such. So you can check me out there. YouTube, it's Cancer Warriors at YouTube. You can find it there. So, yeah, feel free to reach out or check out my sites, and hopefully this information can be helpful to people and inspire people to know that there are many choices for healing cancer. Yeah, such good information, so hard to find, or like we said, can be really confusing and overwhelming, so that you've 
been through it yourself and have such a strong voice um, is super helpful to people. How about, like, do you have a fundraising site or any way if anyone wants to donate with your treatments? Is there anything like that set up? I do have one. Yeah, I have a GoFundMe site. Um, it's Tara Coyote Healing Breast Cancer or Healing BC Naturally, I believe it is. I, I had to change um, to GoFundMe recently because I had a you carrying one and that disappeared. So I don't have it memorized, but it's if you okay. go, I'll, I'll do a link. There we go. Yeah. But yeah, I do have a fundraiser site and donations are greatly appreciated and every little bit helps. So yeah, those treatments Thank are you. expensive and you are giving so much back into the world. So, okay. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you, Amber. It was an honor to be on your show. Really a joy to talk with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, past podcast episodes, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, I invite you to click the purple banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, which healing herb is your plant familiar it's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you are in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. There's some killer rewards there, um, exclusive content, access to online courses, free, beautiful, downloadable ebooks, coupon codes, giveaways, and just amazing gifts provided by past guests of the podcast. All of that stuff is at the $2 a month level. Um, for a little more, you can access my herbal ebook or my small online course. And that's all there as a thank you, a huge thank you from me and from my guests for listening, for supporting this work. I love figuring out what I can give to people on Patreon. It's so fun. And I love that Patreon makes it that you can um, contribute for such a small amount a month. I'm a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding this project into my life has been a questionable move for sure, but I love doing it and I love the feedback that I get from you all. And I just pray that the Patreon continues to allow me the financial wiggle room to keep on doing it while giving back to everyone who's listening. Um, if you're unable to do that, or if you'd like to support further, I would love it if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would review the podcast on iTunes too, really helps get it into other ears and it means so much to me when I read those reviews. It's um, like the highlight of my week when I check them and see new ones. And people are amazing. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. The music that opens and closes the show is by Marie Sue, M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X. It's from her song Wild Eyes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you so much. And I look forward to next time.